Appendix B. A Christian View of Interest Until the Reformation, the Church had almost universally condemned the taking of interest on pecuniary loans of any kind, whether for consumption or commercial purposes. The accepted teaching of the Church throughout the Middle Ages had been that usury, meaning simply what we today call interest, is against both divine and natural law. At the Council of Vienna in 1311, for example, Pope Clement V had even threatened with excommunication magistrates who passed laws permitting usury or who failed to repeal such laws within three months. As Eugen von bohm Bawerk remarked, however, quote, There was only one opponent that the canonist doctrine had never been able to subdue, and that was economic practice itself. In the face of all the penalties on earth and heaven which were provided, interest continued to be offered and taken. This was done partly without disguise, partly under the manifold forms which the inventive spirit of businessmen had devised for slipping through the meshes of the prohibitionist laws in spite of all their casuistry. And the more flourishing the economic conditions of a country, the more strongly did practice oppose the dominant theory. End quote. Section 1. The Origin of the Medieval Church's Teaching on Interest The medieval church's teaching on usury was ostensibly based on the Old Testament ban on Israelites charging interest to their fellow Israelites. But the fact that, rather inconsistently, the church's prohibition was not applied to lending of a non-pecuniary kind, for example goods, houses, indicates that the church's teaching here originated from a source other than the Bible, since, where interest or usury is prohibited in Scripture, it is prohibited on all kinds of loans, money, food, houses, livestock, etc. This is because, in reality, where there is no difference between the increase gained from lending money, interest, and that made from lending goods, rent. As with so many other doctrines of the medieval church, its teaching on usury was derived from the pagan Greek philosopher Aristotle. It was Aristotle's defective view of trade that was the origin of his disapproval of interest. Aristotle considered that there were two uses of a thing, the proper use and the improper use. Quote, Of everything which we possess there are two uses. Both belong to the thing as such, but not in the same manner. For one is the proper and the other the improper or secondary use of it. For example, a shoe is used for wear and is used for exchange. Both are uses of the shoe. He who gives the shoe in exchange for money or food to him who wants one does indeed use the shoe as a shoe. But this is not its proper or primary use, for a shoe is not made to be an object of barter. The same may be said of all possessions, for the art of exchange extends to all of them. End quote. The proper use of the shoe is to wear it, and the improper use is to exchange it for other goods. Trade, for, for Aristotle, is the acquisition of wealth by the improper use of things, and thus unnatural. One who makes his living from trade rather than from the management of house and land is therefore despised and censured. Quote, of the two sorts of money-making, one is a part of household management, the other is retail trade. The former necessary and honourable, 
the latter a kind of exchange which is justly censured, for it is unnatural, and the mode by which men gain from one another. End quote. It follows naturally from this premise that the most despicable and unnatural form of trade is that of lending money at interest, since this is totally divorced from the quote, natural unquote, use of anything. And Zarasotl continues his diatribe against trade. Quote, the most hated sort, and with the greatest reason, is usury, which makes a gain out of money itself, and not from the natural use of it, for money was intended to be used in exchange, but not to increase at interest. And this term, usury, tokos, which means the birth of money from money, is applied to the breeding of money because the offspring resembles the parent. Wherefore, of all modes of making money, this is the most unnatural. End quote. This Aristotelian theory of interest was taken up wholesale by the medieval church and baptized by a superficial appeal to the Old Testament ban on charging interest to the poor. Although sound exegesis of the relevant biblical text would have shown that Aristotle's argument against usury cannot be sustained by scripture, which sets forth a much more specific ban that is narrower in its application. From the Christian point of view, therefore, if Aristotle's argument were correct, it would prove too much. In fact, it would render the biblical teaching itself, first, unjust, because biblical law permitted the Hebrews to charge interest on loads to foreigners, and secondly, inconsistent and contradictory, because in no sense did it permit them to defraud foreigners by means of a form of trade that is, in principle, unjust and unnatural. Any appeal to scripture to support the medieval church's teaching on interest that does not address these two crucial points fails to do justice to the text, and for this reason alone falls to the ground. The scholastic arguments for prohibiting interest were really philosophical, not exegetical. This was the weakness of the medieval church, not only here, but in many other areas of doctrine also, since an interpretation of the Christian religion that was heavily syncretized with pagan Greek philosophy came to dominate the intellectual life of the church, and, along with the heavy accent on the authority of tradition, overruled scripture as the supreme authority in doctrine and practice. Under these conditions, it is not surprising that the biblical teaching on interest lay submerged under the spurious casuistry of the schoolmen for many centuries. Section 2. The Reformation. At the Reformation, however, there was a renewed commitment to Scripture as the supreme and binding authority over the life of man, both as an individual and as a member of society. Scripture took its rightful place above tradition in the Reformed churches, and through biblical exegesis, it filled the place once occupied by philosophy in the medieval church. With the Reformers, there began a thawing of the old medieval canonist attitude towards the taking of interest. In the first sermon of the third of his five decades of sermons, Heinrich Bullinger, the Swiss Reformer and successor of Ulrich Zwingli in Zurich, sets forth the doctrine that usury itself is neither unlawful, dishonest, nor condemned by Scripture. For Bullinger, it is only the abuse of the practice that has made the name of usury dishonest. He defines usury as rent, as Scripture does, 
Leviticus 25, 35-38, Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, and sees no reason why, quote, a good Christian and an honest man may not reap some lawful commodity of the hire of his money, as well as the letting or leasing of his land, end quote. Bullinger then gives the following example to show that usury, per se, is not oppressive or dishonest. Quote, it is in the power of him which so letteth out his money, with that money to buy a farm, and so take the whole gain to himself. But now we see that, in letting the other, the borrower, have it, he granteth him the use of his money, whereby he, the borrower, is a very great gainer. This fellow, to whom the sum is lent, or otherwise given upon covenants of contract, doth with the money get some stay of living, with the revenue whereof he nourisheth all his family, paying to his creditor the portion agreed on, of which, when he hath once made a full restitution, he maketh the living his own for ever, and acquitteth himself from the yearly pension, that is, the payment of interest. In this kind of covenanting, no man, I think, will say that the poor is oppressed, when the thing itself doth rather cry that by such usury the poor is greatly helped. Usury, therefore, is forbidden in the word of God, so far as it biteth, for here I use the very term of the scriptures, his neighbour, while it hindereth him, or otherwise undoeth him. End quote. Bullinger did maintain, however, that it is the duty of the magistrate to protect the poor by setting a lawful rate of interest. Where such lawful rate of interest is lacking, creditors are to be guided by the golden rule as a means of settling a fair rate of interest. Likewise, Calvin cautiously relaxed the prohibition on usury, claiming that, quote, If we should totally prohibit the practice of usury, we would restrain conscience more rigidly than God himself, end quote. He demonstrated the error of the medieval church's teaching by attacking the argument used by Ambrose and Chrysostom that money is sterile. Quote, How do merchants increase their wealth? By being industrious, you answer. I readily admit that even children can see that if you lock your money in a chest, it will not increase. Moreover, no one borrows money from others with the intention of hiding it or not making a profit. Consequently, the gain is not from the money, but from the profits. End quote. Calvin also argued that interest on money loans is no different from interest on the loan of goods. Rent. Quote, the pretext that both St. Ambrose and Chrysostom cite is too frivolous in my judgment, that is, that money does not engender money. Does the sea or the earth engender it? I receive a fee from renting a house. Is that where money grows? Houses, in turn, are products of the trades, where money is also made. Even the value of a house can be exchanged for money. And what? Is money not more productive than merchandise, or any other possession one could mention? It is lawful to make money by renting a piece of ground, yet unlawful to make it from money? What? When you buy a field, is money not making money? End quote. Calvin concludes that, quote, although at first such subtleties appear convincing, upon closer examination they evaporate, since there is no substance to them. Hence I conclude that we ought not to judge usury according to a few passages of Scripture, but in accordance with the principle of equity. End quote. 
Calvin then gives an example to demonstrate his argument. Quote, Take a rich man whose wealth lies in possessions and rents, but who has no money on hand. A second, whose wealth is somewhat more moderate, though less than the first, soon comes into money. If an opportunity should arise, the second person can easily buy what he wants, and the first will have to ask the latter for a loan. It is in the power of the second, under the rules of bargaining, to impose a fee on the first's goods until he repays, and in this manner the first's condition will be improved, although usury has been practised. The wording here is not altogether clear, but what Calvin seems to be saying is that the second person, upon making a loan to the first, is allowed to require him to mortgage some of his goods as security for the loan and then charge rent on the mortgaged goods until the loan is repaid. It is clear from this that Calvin, quite correctly, identifies this rent as usury, and although this usury is for the use of goods, not money, it is considered acceptable under the rules of bargaining. Since rent, usury on loan goods, is not evil per se, neither is usury on money. Calvin drives his point home, quote, Now, what makes a contract just and honest, or unjust and dishonest? Has not the first fared better by means of an agreement involving usury by his neighbour, and that the second had compelled him to mortgage or pawn his goods? To deny this is to play God in a childish manner, preferring words over the truth itself, as if it were in our power, by changing words, to transform virtue into vice, or vice into virtue. I certainly have no quarrel here. End quotes. Following scripture, however, Calvin maintains that interest on loans should not be taken from the poor and needy, and furthermore, that the wealthy should be ready and willing to lend to such. We must not mistake Calvin's motives here. He has no liking of usury, and was not in any sense led to his position by self-interest. He did not approve of lending at interest as a form of livelihood, and says, quote, It would be desirable if usurers were chased from every country, even if the practice were unknown. End quote. But as a pastor and exegete of God's word, he had to set aside his own preferences and expound what the Bible teaches. And he plainly states the matter when he says, quote, I should, indeed, be unwilling to take usury under my patronage, that I myself wish the name itself were banished from the world. But I do not dare pronounce upon so important a point more than God's words convey. End quote. Unfortunately, Calvin, like Billinger, accepted the idea that the state may determine the rate of interest and advised that this should not be exceeded. In this respect, Bullinger and Calvin retained an element of medieval thinking on economic matters and went beyond scripture since there is no biblical justification for the idea that the authorities may establish a legal rate of interest to which moneylenders must restrict themselves rather than charging the market rate of interest. By today's standards, Bullinger's and Calvin's views on usury may seem somewhat unexceptional and overly cautious, even strict, but In the 16th century, their teaching on this subject was revolutionary and represented a significant advance on the muddled economic thinking and faulty exegesis of the medieval canonists and schoolmen. From the Reformation onwards, teaching on interest within the Reformed communities slowly began to express a more biblical emphasis, and interest, per se, was no longer considered evil 
and prohibited. For example, the English Puritan divine Richard Baxter, in his Christian Directory, published in 1673, but originally written in 1664 to 65, argued that usury, as such, is forbidden neither by natural law nor by the law of Moses or any positive command of Christ. Usury may be taken, therefore, except where it is against justice or charity. Likewise, Francis Duritin, in his Institutio Theologiae Elenticae, published in 1679 to 85, gives a systematic defence of usury, arguing that all usury, with the exception of that exacted on a poor loan, is neither prohibited by the law nor opposed to equity and honesty. Eventually, under pressure from the world of commerce, even the Roman Catholic Church, always more sensitive to influences other than the teaching of Scripture, relaxed its condemnation of usury. Section 3. Recent Opposition to Interest More recently, however, a number of voices have been raised against usury, interest, within Christian circles. Two groups, one in the United States and one in Britain, both seeking to apply Old Testament law as a model for the organisation of modern society, have advocated a total ban on interest, arguing that this is the correct interpretation of the biblical teaching. The American group, coming from within the Reconstructionist or Theonomy movement, has correctly identified interest and rent as the same phenomenon, but has advocated, as a result, the abolition of rent as well as interest, considering both to be immoral and unjust. The arguments on interest put forward by this group are confused and misleading and have been answered by Gary North in his book Tools of Dominion. The second group, based in Cambridge, England, is the Jubilee Centre, directed by Michael Schulter, and is familiar in Britain for its stance and campaigning on the Sunday trading laws issue. The Jubilee Centre sponsored the, quote, Keep Sunday Special, unquote, campaign. Unfortunately, the Jubilee Centre seems to be influenced by a collectivist philosophy of society, and though claiming to develop a biblical perspective on social order, would validate the use of government agencies to enforce its own version of a Christian social order on the nation to a far greater extent than can be justified by exegesis of scripture, something the centre tends not to do, preferring to promote government measures to achieve the structural reforms deemed necessary in society by the Jubilee Centre's own interpretation of the biblical social paradigm. The use of a, quote, ladder of abstraction, end quote, to determine the meaning and purpose of biblical law, rather than exegesis, is perhaps one of the major flaws of this approach. Both groups appealed to Scripture, specifically the Old Testament, as the basis of their views. The Jubilee Centre is generally much looser and more selective in its appeal to Old Testament law, though, at the same time, much more literalistic in its interpretation in places than the Theonomy or Reconstructionist movement. The US-based group has also maintained its position against all forms of interest, including rent, by the selective use of scripture, but its concern is much narrower than that of the Jubilee Centre. Section 4. The Old Testament Ban on Interest In view of this resurgence of interest in ethical questions regarding the validity of usury, it will be necessary to look in more detail at the relevant biblical texts and the various interpretations made of them. The law relating to usury is set forth in the following passages. 
Quote, If thou lend money to any of my people that is poor by thee, thou shalt not be to him as an usurer, neither shalt thou lay upon him usury. End quote. Exodus 22, 25. Quote, And if thy brother be waxen poor and fallen into decay with thee, then thou shalt relieve him, yea, though he be a stranger or a sojourner, that he may live with thee. Take thou no usury of him or increase, but fear thy God, that thy brother may live with thee. I shalt not give him thy money upon usury, nor lend him thy victuals for increase. End quote. Leviticus 25, 35-37 Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent upon usury, Upon a stranger thou mayest lend upon usury, but unto thy brother thou shalt not lend upon usury, that the Lord thy God may bless thee in all thy settest thy hand to in the land whither thou go to possess it. End quote. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. In these texts there are two words used for usury or interest, neshek and tarbith. Nekesh and neshek come from the verb nashak, meaning to bite, vex, oppress, lend on usury, or exact interest, or exact interest. Nekesh is thus a bite. The etymology of the word suggests that the interest was taken in advance. For example, the debtor might agree to repay 60 shekels while receiving only 40 shekels from the lender. A modern example of the kind of interest represented here is that taken on a bill or promissory note that circulates prior to its date of maturity at less than its face value. The difference, or discount, gained by a trader in such bills when the bill matures is his bite, or percentage of its value. Tarbith is derived from the term rabah, meaning to be or become many, numerous or increase, multiply. Tarbith thus means increase. A related word is tarbuth, meaning progeny. Tarbith represents the kind of interest we normally associate with lending money, that is, increase on the principal loaned out. Too much importance should not be attributed to the difference between these two words, however. The phenomenon of interest involved in both cases is the same, the difference being only one of method of calculation and payment. Neshek is used in all three texts cited above. Tarbith is used only in the Leviticus text, which reads literally, quote, You shall not take from him bite, neshek, or increase, tarbith, end quote, verse 36. The authorised version causes problems with these texts by translating two Hebrew words by the same English word, the effect of which is to create a contradiction in the English version. In Leviticus 25.35, the word ger is translated as, quote, stranger, end quote, in Deuteronomy 29.20, Nokri is also translated, quote, stranger, end quote. Thus, it appears in English that the Bible says both that strangers must not be charged interest and that they may be charged interest. However, the Hebrew word jur, from ger, meaning to sojourn, dwell, in Leviticus 25.35, should be translated, quote, sojourner, end quote, and the word translated as, quote, sojourner, end quote, the authorised version, Toshab, from Yashab, meaning to sit, dwell, inhabit, should be translated as, quote, settler, end quote. The word Nokri, from Nakar, meaning to estrange, alienate, 
in Deuteronomy 1920 may be translated, quote, stranger, end quote, or, quote, foreigner, end quote. This produces the following results. Quote, And if your brother becomes poor and cannot support himself among you, then you shall help him, the sojourner and the settler too, that he may live with you. End quote. Leviticus 25, 35. Quote, you shall not charge interest to your brother, interest on money, interest on victuals, interest on anything that may earn interest. You may charge interest to a foreigner, but you shall not charge interest to your brother. End quote. Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20. The Bible is thus very clear, in spite of the authorised version's mistranslation. It was permissible to charge interest to foreigners, that is, to those who were strangers to Israel's culture and way of life, but not to fellow Israelites, sojourners and settlers, those who lived with the Jews and were prepared to assimilate with their culture. The authorised version uses the term usury in all three texts. This has led to some confusion and debate over the definition of terms. It has been common for many years for a distinction to be made between interest and usury, the term usury being reserved for rates of interest that are considered exorbitant or illegal, and the term interest for rates that are considered illegal and within the bounds of fairness, however that should be conceived. This distinction goes back to the canonists of the 12th century, who used the word interest from Latin interesse, meaning to be between, to denote the profits made on certain kinds of financing operations and credit transactions designed to circumvent the general prohibition on usury. The distinction, however, is quite arbitrary and without any validity other than that of usage and custom. In view of the fact that the distinction is misleading, it would be preferable to ignore usage and tradition. There is, in reality, no difference between interest and usury. There are merely different terms for the same thing. Gary North uses the term usury for interest charge on charity loans, regardless of the rate charged, and the term interest for increase on all other loans, again, regardless of the rate charged. This, too, in my judgment, is incorrect, at least from the biblical point of view, though not as misleading as the former use. Whether interest and usury mean different things due to usage throughout history, and whatever nuances may be brought to bear on their meanings as a consequence of their differing etymologies, it is quite irrelevant for my purposes here, since it is the biblical notion of requiring an increase on or bite out of the principal loan that is in view. Call it interest or usury, it refers to the same phenomenon. For our purposes here, therefore, I shall treat the terms as equivalent in all respects. Whereas the Decalogue sets forth general principles, the context of biblical case law is specific, since its purpose is to explain the general principles of God's law by applying them to the concrete circumstances that faced the people of Israel. In this way, the people of Israel were left in no doubt as to the meaning and application of the Decalogue. There is no virtue in reading back into Scripture practices and circumstances that were unknown to the people of Israel in those times and that the case law did not address. Such a procedure is anachronistic and can lead to serious misunderstanding of the text. Yet, this is how teaching of the ethics of usury has often been handled. The correct procedure is to start with scripture, with exegesis, 
and develop an understanding of the context, the concrete situation that Scripture addresses, and then apply the biblical teaching to equivalent circumstances in the modern world. Where this procedure is inverted, the biblical teaching is often distorted and consequently its application to modern society is faulty. In order to understand the meaning and purpose of the Old Testament ban on usury, it is necessary to understand what kind of loans were generally incurred by the people of Israel at that time. In the first place, it must be recognised that commercial loans of the kind generally incurred in modern business practice, that is, non-charitable secured loans, were unknown among the people of Israel at this time. A primitive agricultural community of the kind that existed in Israel in early biblical times had no need of commercial loans of this kind to finance its economy. Commerce among the Jews in this period seems to have been very minimal, and with the exception of Solomon's merchant navy and trade with King Hiram, 1 Kings 5, 9, 26-28, 10, 11-29, foreign trade was not common. King Jehoshaphat's attempt to rebuild a merchant navy came to nothing, 1 Kings 22, 48, 2 Chronicles 20, 36 and 37. The economy was based almost exclusively on agriculture. Loans in this period were made primarily to the poor in order to provide the borrower with the necessities of life during a period when he and his family would otherwise have starved. Second, consumer loans of the type common in modern Western societies, that is, loans to finance acquisition of luxuries or goods that are not essential for basic needs, were also unknown at this time. Third, borrowing was generally considered a practice to be avoided, if at all possible. The Bible teaches that, quote, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is a servant to the lender, end quote, Proverbs 22, 7. Furthermore, being in a position where one had sufficient means to lend to those in need, one's considered a blessing from God. Thus, Deuteronomy 15, 6 states, quote, for the Lord thy God blesseth thee, as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, but they shall not borrow. And thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. End quote. Compare Deuteronomy 28, 12. Being in the position of having to borrow was an undesirable condition, and debt was to be entered into only when there was no alternative. Loans were measures that the poor were forced to take when there was no other option open to them. Someone requiring a loan was, for whatever reason, in desperate circumstances and without sufficient savings or non-essential possessions that he could sell in order to obviate an emergency, his only hope being to tap the resources of someone more wealthy than himself by means of a loan. Hence the rich are exhorted to lend to those in need. Even when the year of Jubilee was close at hand, and the probability was that a debtor would not be able to repay his loan before the year of release of debts, the wealthy were commanded to be generous and lend to the poor. Deuteronomy 15, 9 and 10. On the other hand, failure to pay one's debts when this becomes possible is considered a mark of wickedness. Quote, The wicked borroweth and payeth not again, but the righteous showeth mercy and giveth. End quote. Psalm 37, 21 and a man might have to sell himself into servitude to pay off his debts. Leviticus 25, 39-41, compare Nehemiah 5, 4 and 5. Fourth, the nation of Israel at this time 
was primarily an agricultural society, and the most common reason for having to borrow during this period was the failure of crops. Nehemiah 5, 2. During such times, it would be the poorer families, those who did not have sufficient grain stored to carry them over the lean years, or alternative forms of wealth that could be sold in order to buy grain, that would suffer the most. Hence, when the crops failed, or during years when the harvest was poor, they would be forced to borrow from the more wealthy members of the community. Alternatively, they might sell themselves into bondage until the next year of Jubilee, Leviticus 25, 39-41. Both options would be considered only by the very poor. Possibly, as G. North maintains, these two practices were formally and contractually linked, the criteria for obtaining an unsecured interest-free poverty loan being the willingness of the debtor to sell himself into servitude until the next year of Jubilee in order to redeem his debt, should he be unable to make repayment by any other means. Fifth, during the period of the Second Temple, oppressive taxation was also a problem that created hardship for the poor and led to the necessity of both borrowing and the selling of family members into service to raise enough money to survive. Nehemiah 5, 1-5 Nehemiah rebuked the nobles and rulers of Israel for exacting interest on loans from their fellow Israelites. Nehemiah 5, 6-13 But clearly, the situation was again one of famine and poverty, and was, in part, caused by excessive taxation. The biblical ban on charging interest is not a total ban, however. The Bible distinguishes between those from whom interest may be taken and those from whom it may not be taken. The basic distinction is between the Jew and those Gentiles who were permanent members of the Jewish community and foreigners. Leviticus 25.35 makes it clear that not only Jews, but sojourners and settlers in Israel were also to be treated like fellow Jews, and interest was not to be exacted from them. Sojourners and settlers were resident aliens who chose to live in Israel. They were people who, first, placed themselves under the law of God, at least formally, in all the demands that it makes upon the external actions of man and his relationship with others, and thus, secondly, were prepared to assimilate with the culture of Israel. In other words, they were God-fearers. An analogy could be drawn between such and many in the Christian societies of the West in previous centuries, who, though not regenerate believers, were nonetheless highly Christianized, that is, assimilated into a Christian culture to the extent that they behaved like Christians in terms of morality and thought like Christians, having a common Christian worldview. The Bible commands that such sojourners and settlers in Israel were to be treated equally under the usury law with native-born Hebrews, Exodus 12, 49, Leviticus 24, 22, Numbers 15, 16, 29, and therefore they were not to be charged with interest on loans. In Deuteronomy 23:20, however, we are told that Jews were permitted to charge interest to foreigners. The Jews were permitted to exact interest from those who were members of an alien culture, and no restrictions whatsoever were placed upon the taking of interest from such. Some important conclusions regarding the ethics of taking interest follow from this discussion. First, the Old Testament ban on interest is not general in nature. The ban is always issued in a qualified form. In Exodus 22:25 and Leviticus 25:35 to 37 
it is limited to the poor Israelite and settler, and in Deuteronomy 23, 19 and 20, simply to the Israelite. The scriptures nowhere forbid lending at interest in general terms, but always lending at interest to some particular class of persons. The law, in other words, is not given as a central ban, such as, quote, you shall not kill, unquote, which is qualified by certain exceptions, such as the execution of murderers, kidnappers, or in the defence of judicially innocent human life. It is always given as a specific ban on taking interest from particular types of people. Thus, Calvin writes, quote, But those who think differently may object that we must abide by God's judgment when he generally prohibits all usury to his people. I reply that the question is only as to the poor, and consequently, if we have to do with the rich, that usury is freely permitted, because the lawgiver, in alluding to one thing, seems not to condemn another, concerning which he is silent, quote. Since there is no general ban on taking interest in the Bible, the purpose of exegesis in regard to these laws is to show where the restriction applies. In expounding the relevance of the law for modern society, it is then necessary to identify equivalent circumstances in modern culture to those addressed by the law, since it is there that the ban has its application. If, however, it is assumed that the ban is general in nature, with possible exceptions, the purpose of exegesis will be to show where those exceptions apply. The two approaches will yield very different conclusions. The former demonstrates where there are specific restrictions, that is, interest is permissible in all circumstances except this or that, whereas the latter will only show that certain cases are accepted from the general ban, that is, interest is not permissible in any circumstances except this or that. The prohibition under the latter interpretation is much more extensive and universal than under the former. It is important, therefore, that the nature of the ban be established at the outset. As we have seen, the ban is never stated in a general or universal form, that is to say, it is never given as a general principle, but always in the form of a case law demonstrating a specific restriction. The permission to take interest from foreigners is not an exception to a general ban on charging interest. Rather, the restrictions on taking interest from fellow Israelites and settlers are exceptions to a practice that is, in all other circumstances, permissible. Thus, second, interest per se is not evil or unjust. The Jews were never permitted to act unjustly towards foreigners. All human actions are required by God to conform to the ethical norms revealed in his word, and this general principle applies to all human relationships, whether they are relationships with one's family, neighbours or foreigners. Indeed, the Torah specifically requires that one's relationship not only with one's friends and neighbours, but also with one's enemies, should be regulated by justice and compassion. Exodus 32, 3-5 There is in Scripture a distinction placed between foreigners and fellow Israelites in the matter of charging interest, but there is no double standard of ethics. The Bible does not require strict adherence to ethical standards between believers, but relax this requirement in relationship between believers and non-believers or foreigners. If interest were wrong per se, intrinsically evil, however, this would be the case precisely. The only alternative would be for the Jews to be forbidden to charge interest to foreigners also. But the Bible permits this, 
all notions of interest being intrinsically wrong or evil, therefore, must be set aside. Not only is there no biblical justification for such an idea, it makes complete nonsense of biblical teaching on the ethics of charging interest. Scripture teaches that the taking of interest is ethically acceptable, but that there are certain exceptions to this, situations in which it is wrong to take interest, namely when the loan is a charitable loan given to help a poor fellow Israelite or God-fearer in his distress. Third, neither is the taking of interest on charity loans or loans to the poor forbidden in principle. The ban is more specific than this. The biblical law prohibits the taking of interest on loans to specific categories of the poor, namely Israelites, settlers and resident aliens. It would, therefore, be quite acceptable for a Jew living in a foreign country, which was much more common after the diaspora, to take interest on loans made to poor Gentiles. Furthermore, there would be no Sabbath year of release of debt required on these loans. Deuteronomy 15, 3 The charging of interest on such loans is not immoral or evil. It is permitted by Scripture. The ban on interest relates to poor loans made to believers and those who are prepared to live under the external demands and requirements of the faith, for such were the resident aliens and settlers who, by their willingness to live in Israel, put themselves under the ethical demands of the covenant, at least in the outward conduct of their lives. The distinction between those from whom interest may be taken and those from whom it may not be taken is a religious and cultural distinction. Interest may be charged on loans made to foreigners and those who refuse to place themselves under the law of God, even if they are poor. The believer has a duty to help those in need, the destitute and the poor, if he is able to do so. This duty extends to foreigners and non-believers, but the charging of interest on loans to such is not prohibited, and no disapprobation should be attached to the practice. Fourth, that interest per se is not evil or forbidden is corroborated by the fact that Israel's being in a position to lend to many nations at interest is considered a blessing that God will bestow upon the nation if the people are faithful to his covenant. Quote, For the Lord thy God blesseth thee as he promised thee, and thou shalt lend to many nations, but thou shalt not borrow, and thou shalt reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over thee. End quote. Deuteronomy 15.6 Compare 28.12 Since the Bible teaches that, quote, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender, end quote, Proverbs 22.7, the making of interest-bearing loans to Gentiles was a principle and peaceful means by which the people of God were to extend their dominion over the earth. Being able to lend at interest to Gentiles, therefore, was both a blessing for the Jews and a means of dominion over the ungodly, sanctioned by God's righteous law for the glory of his name. Section 5. Later Rabbinic Teaching on Interest Although commerce was comparatively minimal in the early history of the people of Israel, when their livelihood was based principally on agriculture, the Babylonian captivity brought this period of relative isolation to an end. Jewish communities grew up in all the great commercial cities of the ancient world. As a result, the Jews were well placed for commercial activities of all kinds, and it seems that the Jews of the Diaspora were indeed largely reliant on commerce for their livelihoods. Since the law permitted Jews to charge interest on loans to foreigners, we can assume also that interest-bearing commercial loans were made by Jews to Gentiles.
However, the rabbis continued to prohibit interest on all loans to fellow Jews, even in commerce and business. Though, as we have seen, the Torah did not address the issue of non-charitable commercial loans. It will be useful, therefore, to look briefly at how the rabbis interpreted this ban, since their observations throw some light on what would be involved in taking the ban as a general prohibition on how this would affect commercial and trade in the modern world. First of all, the rabbis interpreted the ban on interest between Jews and settlers to apply not only to payments in money or the specific goods lent, but also to gifts given to the lender, either before or after contracting a loan, since these are considered inducements or rewards for the loan and therefore constitute a form of interest. The mere giving of information, which, after all, is vital to entrepreneurial activity, creation of wealth, to a creditor who would not otherwise have had such information, is considered usurious. Thus, any form of advantage gained by a creditor from a debtor is treated as interest. Second, another area where the Old Testament ban on interest would apply were it to be understood as a general ban, and one involving a practice that is very common in Western society today is given by the rabbis, namely the practice of discounting prices for on-the-spot cash payments. The Mishnah reads, quote, Rent may increase, but not the purchase price. For example, if a man rents his court and says to him, the tenant, quote, If you pay me now for the year, you can have it for 10 sellers per annum, if monthly, at a seller per month, end quote. That is permitted. If he sells his field and says to him, the purchaser, quote, If you pay me now, it is yours for a thousand zoos, but at harvest for 12 manes, end quote. That is forbidden. End quote. The Gemara commentary on this text explains, quote, What is the difference between the first clause and the second? Rabbah and R. Joseph both said, Rent is payable at the end of the year. Hence, since it is not yet time to claim, it is not payment for waiting, but this, a seller per month, is its actual value. And as for his proposition, if you pay me now for the year, you can have it for 10 seller per annum. He is favouring him with a cheaper rent than normal. But in the second clause, the reference is to purchase, where the money is immediately due. Therefore, the higher price is payment for waiting, which is forbidden. End quote. This principle was also recognised by the canonists of the 12th century, who maintained that the sale of goods on credit for a higher price than cash sales was usurious. Thus, the Old Testament ban on interest would, where applicable, render such cash discounts unacceptable. This would have significant repercussions for modern retailing practices, where the ban judged to be a general ban and applicable in modern society. To this, we should add that all bills of exchange that circulate at a discount prior to their date of maturity fall into this category also. Third, of great significance for the modern world of business, were the Old Testament ban to be considered applicable to commercial loans, would be the rabbinic observation that contracts for futures may lead indirectly to the taking of interest. The Babylonian Talmud states, quote, Our rabbis taught one may not contract for commodities until the market price is out. Once the market price is established, a contract may be entered into. For even if one, the vendor, has no stock, another has. If the new supplies were at four, say as, for seller, and the old at three, 
a contract may not be made until the price has been equalised for the new and the old. End quote. H. Friedman comments, quote, New supplies were cheaper because they were not yet fully dried. Now the purchaser, though paying early, does not receive the wheat until that too becomes old, and if he contracts for the whole at the price of the new, he receives interest. Therefore, he must wait until the same market price is fixed for both. End quote. Here the kind of interest envisaged is not direct interest, that is, a fixed rate of return on the loan, but indirect interest as a result of speculation. Such profits arising from speculation are considered usurious nonetheless, since they come within the rabbinic and economically sound maxim that all payments for waiting for one's money constitute interest. The kind of interest contemplated and forbidden here is precisely the kind of profit earned by those who deal in futures. Under the application of the Old Testament ban on interest to commercial transactions, therefore, markets for futures, at least in their present form, would not be permissible. Those who see the Old Testament ban as a general ban on interest in all circumstances should be aware of the consequences of such an interpretation. The implications would be far-reaching for the economy, both for the way it functions and for its productivity and efficiency. For instance, the effect of outlawing profits made in markets for futures would be to make the quoting of prices of raw materials and semi-manufactured goods to be delivered at a later date impossible and this would in turn lead to greater uncertainty and fluctuations in retail prices. Of course, this is essentially a pragmatic argument, and it is not being suggested here that such arguments should be allowed to determine one's ethics. But it is important also that we should understand the implications of an ethical stance on a given issue. Section 6. The Parable of the Talents By New Testament times, Banking and interest-bearing loans were well enough established facts of commercial life in Israel for Jesus to have based one of his parables on the practice. Though the rabbis continued to condemn the taking of interest from fellow Jews on all loans, commercial as well as poverty loans, the New Testament makes no comment on the practice in relation to commerce other than what can be inferred from the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 12-30, Luke 19, 11-26. It has been claimed both that the parable of the talents legitimises the taking of interest on commercial loans and that it does not do so. It is difficult to determine from the parable alone whether interest-bearing commercial loans are permissible in terms of biblical ethics. One's interpretation of the parable will largely be determined, therefore, by whether one views the Old Testament ban as a general ban or a specific ban on interest. As we have already seen, the exegetical case for the ban being general in nature is very weak, whereas the case for the ban being specific and limited to the cases cited is very strong. If we accept the latter on exegetical grounds, the parable of the talents simply corroborates the conclusion that the ban on interest in the Old Testament did not address commercial loans. On this premise, it is quite legitimate to argue that the parable legitimises interest on loans made for purely commercial purposes. Thus, G. North writes, quote, Jesus was affirming the legitimacy of both profit through trade and the normal rate of return which is secured by lending money. The two forms of activity are not the same, as the parable indicates, but both are legitimate. End quote. If, on the other hand, 
we ignore the exegetical case for the ban being specific and treat it as a general ban on interest, the parable becomes more difficult to explain, since the master, who required at least that his money be loaned out at interest, is clearly to be identified with Christ. In order to circumvent this problem, S.C. Mooney attempts to interpret the parable in such a way that lending at interest is not condoned by the master. This idea is far-fetched, but it will be instructive to look at the argument in more detail in order to demonstrate the difficulties with this kind of interpretation. Mooney writes, quote, Here's what the servant who has hidden the money said to the master in the parable, quote, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed, and I was afraid, and went away and hid your talent in the ground. End quote. Matthew 25, 24, 25. In Luke 19, 21, the servant calls the master an, quote, exacting, unquote, man. Now, what does the master say concerning the servant? Quote, you wicked, lazy slave, end quote. Matthew 25, 27, and, quote, you worthless slave, end quote. Luke 19, 22. It is evident that these are incompatible evaluations. Is it really a great problem to decide whose words are truth? If it already has been said that the master represents Christ, would it not be inconsistent to doubt the evaluation he gives of that servant? If his evaluation is accepted and we come also to view this one as worthless, wicked and lazy slave, then how much stock would we put in his image of the master? Not a great deal at all. Does Jesus reap where he has not sown, or take up where he has not laid down? Steal? We know that this is untrue. Then why do some read the remainder of the master's comments as though he were admitting that the slave was right? He says, quote, You knew that I reap where I did not sow, and gather where I scattered no seed, and you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. End quote. Matthew 25, 26. 27. What the master is saying here is something like, quote, If that really is what you thought of me, then this is what you should have done. End quote. Indeed, the Luke version comes very close to saying it is just that way when the master says, quote, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. End quote. 19.22. It is only by the word of the slave that the master is those evil things never by any admission of the master. The word of the slave does not determine that the master is evil. Rather, the slave, by his own words, has proven himself to be evil, for the master is good definitively. End quote. On this interpretation, the master is not saying that the servant should at least have loaned out the money at interest, but only that if the master was as corrupt as the servant claimed he was, he should have lent it out at interest a corrupt practice, according to Mooney. However, the text does not say, quote, Thou thoughtest that I reap where I sowed not, end quote, but, quote, Thou knewest, end quote, etc. Mooney's claim that the words of Luke, quote, Out of thine own mouth I will judge thee, end quote, verse 22, suggests the former interpretation is not sustainable. First, the adjective used of the master by the servant does not imply corruption, which is what we should expect if Mooney's interpretation were correct. The word means simply hard, severe, strict. The English word austere is derived from this Greek term. 
To have a code of conduct that is austere certainly does not imply moral corruption. Rather, the opposite. But on Mooney's interpretation, lending money at interest is an evil form of gain. Indeed, Mooney equates it with theft, practiced by those who are morally corrupt. Second, if we accept, for the sake of argument, that the Old Testament ban is general in nature, this in no way casts these words of Luke in a different light, nor can it justify changing, quote, new, unquote, to, quote, thought, unquote, or, quote, believed, unquote. Incorrectly, on Mooney's interpretation. Third, they come close to putting the words in a form that would support Mooney's interpretation is not the same thing as putting them in a form that does in fact support his interpretation. Mooney's interpretation is contrived. The most straightforward interpretation of the words is simply that the servant knew the truth about his master and therefore what he did was inexcusable. His punishment is therefore just. The words in Luke 19.22 will not bear Mooney's interpretation and to change quote new unquote to quote thought unquote is simply a distortion that creates problems with the logic and internal consistency of the interpretation as we shall see. Fourth, Mooney thinks that the parable teaches that taking interest is something that only hard and evil men do and that the servant's estimation of his master's demands was incorrect. That is to say, that the master was not hard, that he did not reap where he had not sown, nor gather where he had scattered no seed. To interpret the parable in any other way would, for Mooney, imply that Christ is a hard and unscrupulous master. But neither exegesis of the text, nor the logic of Mooney's argument, will bear out this interpretation. As to the former, the text clearly indicates that the servant's estimation of his master's demands is correct, As regards Mooney's logic, if we accept that the master is not evil, which is quite true, it simply does not follow that the slave's assessment of his master's action upon his return is incorrect. On Mooney's interpretation, we should expect the master to show mercy to the slave, since he was not really the hard man that the slave claimed he was. But in fact, he does not show mercy and instead punishes the slave, the very thing that the slave feared in the first place. Thus, the internal logic of this interpretation falls apart. The slave's assessment of the master is correct, therefore. The slave is wrong only in calling his master hard rather than just. And surely this is the point. Non-believers complain at God's justice when it is meted out to them and call it injustice. Fifth, Matthew 25:27 militates against Mooney's interpretation of the parable since the phrase, quote, Thou oughtest, end quote, in Thou oughtest therefore to have put my money to the exchangers, end quote, is, as Leon Morris points out, quote, a strong term. The master is thinking of the easiest way of getting a profit, and at the very least, this is something that the man was under obligation to do, end quote. Good stewardship of the resources committed to us, the point of the parable, requires, at the very least, other things being equal, that we lend out our money at interest, unless, of course, it is loaned to the poor believer or God-fearer, since it is then to put to productive use that will benefit others and ourselves, rather than being buried in the ground where it will do no one any good. Michael Schluter also treats the Old Testament ban on interest as general in nature, and sees the granting of permission to Jews to exact interest from foreigners 
as an exception to the general principle. Quote, there is only one exception, writes Schluter, quote, that is, loans to foreigners. These are people outside Israel's borders. The resident alien or refugee is included among those who may not be charged. The ban on interest between citizens of a state is given as a universal absolute. There seems no way to avoid this conclusion. Perhaps it should be even regarded as a structural evil, in the same category as death. End quote. The claim that the ban is a universal absolute for citizens of a state, however, cannot be supported from scripture. As we have seen, the Torah permitted Jews residing in Gentile countries where they were citizens to take interest from Gentiles on all kinds of loans, and Jewish residents in Gentile nations were forbidden by the same law from taking interest on loans to poor Jews resident in Palestine, even though they were citizens of another state. Even if we accept the idea that the ban on interest is a general principle with certain exceptions, it would not be valid to conclude, as Schluter does, that the ban relates to citizens of a state. The Bible clearly contradicts such a notion by permitting Jewish citizens of Gentile states to lend to Gentile citizens of such states. Even if the ban were to be understood as general in nature, there is a clearly stated exception to it, Deuteronomy 23.20, that contradicts Schluter's argument. Schluter goes on to consider the parable of the talents and claims that it does not relax the Old Testament's universal and absolute ban on interest between citizens of a state. Quote, Nothing in the New Testament relaxes the ban on interest. It is often argued that in the parable of the talents, Jesus allows interest for business dealings, differentiating commercial loans from the exploitation by moneylenders referred to in the Mosaic Law. However, careful scrutiny of the passages does not allow this way out. Firstly, to base a major change in the law on the detail of a parable is not generally regarded as permissible in biblical interpretation. It is surprising how readily it has been accepted in this case. Secondly, the words which Jesus actually puts in the mouth of the Master are these, quote, You bad and lazy servant, you knew, did you, that I reap harvests where I do not sow and gather crops where I do not scatter seeds? Well then, you should have deposited my money in the bank and I would have received it all back with interest when I returned. End quote. Matthew 25, 26, 27. Interest is regarded by the master as reaping where one has not sown, rather like the current bank advertisement which shows a man asleep with his feet up who is said to be, quote, busy earning 8.75%, unquote, on his money. This is hardly a view of interest which should encourage Christians to promote self-interest lending. Nor can we even be certain that the bank referred to in the parable would be lending money to fellow Israelites. Knowing the influence of the Pharisees and their addiction to the detail of the law, it is more likely that any banks in Jesus' day would have been lending to foreigners, so that the master in this story is only encouraging the servant to lend within the framework laid down by the law. If any lesson can be deduced from the story, it would be that lending an interest is better than just hoarding gold, but that it is still very much a second best to direct investment. End quote. All four points made here fail to prove the basic contention, namely that the parable does not permit interest-bearing commercial loans, and the overall argument is unconvincing. 
a fact that Sluter as good as admits at the end. The first argument, namely, that to base a major change in the law on the detail of a parable is not good hermeneutics, is in itself a valid point. But in this context, it begs the question. This argument is only valid if the interpretation of the parable as permitting interest-bearing commercial loans is indeed a major change in the law. In other words, if it can be conclusively proved that the Old Testament ban is an absolute universal ban prohibiting interest on all types of loans, including commercial loans between citizens of a state. Schluter's argument assumes the truth of the point to be proved. But as we have seen, the point cannot be proved. On the contrary, exegesis of the relevant text shows that the laws prohibiting interest are case laws addressing specific circumstances. Hence, to interpret the parable as permitting interest-bearing commercial loans is not a major change in the law. Schluter claims that, quote, No word do the law or the prophet separate out some lending and make it legitimate because it is between contracting parties of equal financial strength or because it may be classified as productive investment, end quote. However, this is true only because such commercial loans were not a feature of Israel's primitive agricultural economy. To apply case laws that deal with the specific and concrete circumstances of Israelite society in early biblical times to practices that were then unknown is not legitimate unless there is some general principle underpinning those laws, general equity, that is relevant to the new cases and can be applied to them. For instance, the case law requiring the Hebrews to put fences around their roofs to protect life, Deuteronomy 22.8, is not applicable to houses with sloped roofs, since they are not lived on as are flat roofs. But the general equity of the law applies to other construction, such as bridges, stairways, etc. But this is not the case with the case laws prohibiting interest, since the Bible makes it clear that in other cases familiar to the Jews, for example lending to foreigners, interest is permitted. The general principle of an absolute and universal ban on interest cannot be extrapolated from the case law, since such a principle is not embodied in the law. Were such a principle of general equity, that is, justice, embodied in the ban on usury, it would clearly be in conflict with the fact that the law permitted Jews to lend at interest to foreigners. Since the general equity of the law would apply to foreigners just as much as to Israelites, otherwise the whole notion of general equity would be meaningless. The inescapable implication would be that the Bible itself is permitting Jews to exact usury from foreigners is unjust. Of course, this would in turn mean that God himself is unjust, since not only has God permitted his people to practice such a perverse and unjust form of trade, he has also promised to bless them with success in it if they obediently serve him before all else. This would be not only for God to condone the sin, but also to reward it. It is not possible to draw such a principle of general equity from the ban on usury, therefore, without destroying the coherence of biblical ethics, and indeed, without impugning the very character of God as a righteous and just lawgiver. However, the general principle, quote, thou shalt not kill, end quote, is embodied in the law requiring fences around flat roofs. We are always required to preserve judicially innocent human life where possible, 
since this is the meaning of, quote, thou shalt not kill. But the ban on interest, as we have seen, is not an application of the general principle, quote, thou shalt not steal, end quote, since if interest per se were theft, it would not be permissible to make interest-bearing loans to foreigners. The specific ban on interest is an embodiment of the requirement to show charity to fellow believers and God-fearers. In other words, the interest ban embodies a principle of charity, not a principle of justice. And of course, as one would expect, given this fact, there is no judicial penalty for the failure to fulfil this law of charity. That is, it does not come within the scope of the magistrate's duty to enforce public justice and punish criminals, because failure to obey this law is not a crime. Yet the fact that the law embodies a principle of charity rather than of justice does not mean that it is not morally binding in the context in which it is given. God will certainly judge those who refuse to abide by his word and obey this commandment. The point is that such charity is not required, legally or morally, in cases outside the scope of the commandment's particular terms of reference, that is, fellow Jews, sojourners and settlers, those who are prepared to live under the external requirements of the covenant. This same degree of charity is not required in the believer's relationship with those outside the faith. Take the following analogy. I am required to feed and clothe my children, that is, provide for their welfare. The scripture says I am worse than an infidel if I fail to do this. 1 Timothy 5, 8 But I am not required to feed and clothe all and sundry in the same way. If I sell clothes, I may make a profit out of my customers. Indeed, only as I do make a profit am I able to fulfill the Bible's command to provide for my own dependents. In making a profit from the sale of clothes to such people, I do them no injustice. Though, if I were to help a poor man by giving him some clothes, I should be showing mercy. Similarly, I am obligated by God's law to provide a godly education for my children, but this obligation does not extend to all who need educating, that is, to those outside my family. My obligation to provide for my own household in these matters is not based on some general principle that requires me to provide for everyone else in the same way. Much less does it require the state to exercise its obligation for me or for society general by funding welfare programs with taxes levied on my family's income, income that I need in order to fulfil my obligation to my family properly. The ban on interest embodies a similar principle of charity and no more necessitates a universal prohibition on interest than my duty to feed, clothe and educate my children at zero profit requires me to feed, clothe and educate the whole neighbourhood on the same basis. The principle is this. Old Testament law is valid and applicable to contemporary society provided it is applied to a comparable situation. We do not put fences around our roofs since we do not live on them. But we do put railings along bridges and on stairways. The law has to be applied to comparable circumstances. The fact that the Bible permits the charging of interest in many circumstances, for example, to foreigners, and even on mercy loans to foreigners, should give us reason to be very cautious about extrapolating from these specific case laws to generalities. Commercial lending was not the issue being addressed, but rather the poor and needy fellow believer.
in a society without commercial loans, it would be irrelevant for the law or the profits to make the distinction that Schluter mentions. Schluter's second argument, that reaping where one has not sown, is a view of interest that should not encourage Christians to promote lending an interest, is similar in nature to Mooney's argument discussed above, namely, that exacting interest is the practice of hard and unscrupulous men, incompatible with the Christian virtues, and falls to the ground for the same reasons. The third argument, that Jewish banks were influenced by Pharisaic principles and thus encouraged lending and interest only to foreigners, may well be correct, but if commercial loans are not banned by the biblical case laws, it changes nothing. The Pharisees bound many laws of their own devising upon the people. They were notorious for making offence around the Torah, yet neglected the weightier matters of the law. Matthew 23.23 This argument still assumes that the Old Testament ban is general in nature and thus presupposes the point to be proved. If this is not so, it matters not how the Pharisees ran their banking business. Furthermore, this argument contradicts the second argument. They are alternative interpretations that cannot be squared with each other, since the argument that lending at interest per se is unethical would, if true, make lending to foreigners unethical also. The fourth point made by Schluter is odd in that it seems to reduce to insignificance, if not absurdity, the previous three points. If the lesson to be deduced from the parable is that, quote, lending at interest is better than just hoarding gold, but that it is still very much a second best to direct investment, end quote, then, in order to show that lending at interest is wrong, it would have to be shown that hoarding gold, that is, saving, is also wrong. The latter is a completely different subject, however, and to argue that the Bible forbids the hoarding of gold, saving, as a premise for denying the validity of lending at interest, would surely stretch the credulity of the most ardent opponent of usury. We cannot save our gold, and we cannot lend it out at interest. The only alternative is to spend it all as soon as we get it, or else give it all away immediately, since even direct investment involves a certain amount of long-term planning and thus hoarding, that is, saving. I suppose this has a certain logic from a socialist point of view. That is, money is evil, per se, get rid of it. But it hardly leads to productivity, capitalization, and economic and social progress. And moreover, as a result, flies flat in the face of the teaching of the parable. On the other hand, following the logic of the argument, if hoarding gold is morally legitimate, then lending at interest on a commercial basis is also morally legitimate. No disapprobation is imputed to the taking of interest per se, therefore. The encouragement to use one's wealth in a more productive form of investment might be a valid principle of Christian stewardship, though not in all circumstances. Compare Calvin's argument above. I have no problem with drawing this lesson from the parable. It is internally consistent, as well as consistent with the argument that interest-bearing commercial loans are not outlawed in Scripture. Section 7. Some Practical Considerations Before drawing this discussion of interest to a close, there are a few other points that should be made, which, while outside the scope of the discussion, strictly speaking, do have some practical relevance. 
In the Bible, the Christian is encouraged to avoid borrowing, if at all possible, whether at interest for commercial and consumer purposes or because of poverty without paying interest. Quote, Owe no man anything but to love one another. End quote. Romans 13, 8. Thus, while it is acceptable to lend at interest on non-charitable commercial loans and to make interest-free loans to those in need who are of the faith, it is undesirable to borrow under any circumstances. All borrowing is to be avoided by the Christian, if possible. This is not always possible, especially in the matter of housing, but it is a goal to aim at. Nonetheless, there are priorities in the Christian life, and getting out of debt may not be the most important. For instance, in a culture where the market for rented accommodation is extremely limited, as it is in Britain, and where it is virtually impossible to save up for a house because of inflation and the consequent ever-escalating cost of housing, it is more important that the family has a home of its own to live in than that the mortgage is dropped. In many places in Britain, the only alternative to buying a house with a mortgage is to be dependent on the state for housing, certainly an option not to be preferred above taking on a mortgage. Mortgages may be necessary, therefore, and, as long as the Christian keeps the general injunction to stay out of debt in mind, he should not feel guilty about having a mortgage, per se. Some advocate paying off the mortgage as soon as possible, and, in principle, this is good advice, but there are priorities in life. If paying off the mortgage in 10 years instead of 20 years is going to mean that one has insufficient funds to provide a good Christian education for one's children, it would seem better to let the mortgage run a few more years, other things being equal. A Christian education for one's children, either at home or at a good Christian school, takes priority over paying off the mortgage early, in my opinion. These are, of course, matters that each individual believer and Christian family must determine for themselves. But it is important not to overstress the issue of mortgage debt at the expense of issues that take priority over it. On the other hand, all kinds of consumer debt should be avoided. The general principle to be aimed at is to get out of debt as soon as possible since, quote, the rich ruleth over the poor and the borrower is servant to the lender. End quote. Proverbs 22, 7. Being in a position to lend is a blessing, and a willingness to lend to the poor and those in need is the mark of a righteous man. Psalm 37, 25-26. Christians are to be in positions of dominion and leadership, ruling over the earth for the glory of God, and thus borrowing is to be avoided. The Bible teaches that lending at interest is a means of dominion over the ungodly.